ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. Twelve women from Vanuatu are taking one of Australia's largest horticultural companies to court, accusing it of not providing a safe workplace. This case uh, that's been brought against Perfection Fresh is, we believe, one of the biggest sexual harassment cases in Australia. Also today, should we all be eating more wattle seed? Researchers have been looking at the nutritional and flavour properties of this native legume and feel there's a big industry in the waiting. So uh, I do strongly believe that everyone will benefit from including wattle seeds in their diet. And we'll be speaking to Karen Sheldon about this before 1.30. The federal government has also just announced a tweak to the NAIF. What will be changed? You'll find out today on the Country Hour. We are broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC. And g'day there if you've downloaded the podcast. News just in. Crocodile wrangler Matt Wright and his helicopter company have been charged by NT WorkSafe with four counts of reckless conduct under the Work Health and Safety Act. It follows Mr Wright being charged with a number of offences by NT Police relating to alleged events following a helicopter crash in 2022 which killed his friend and TV co-star Chris Willow-Wilson. I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald. Uh, yeah, this is news just out from NT WorkSafe. What's happened? Yes, so the Work Health and Safety Regulator has charged helicopter company Hellybrook and its director Matt Wright with breaches of the NT's work health and safety laws over their failures to maintain safe aircraft. Now, NT WorkSafe has said while the exact cause of the 2022 helicopter crash which killed Chris Wilson, has not been determined by any regulatory agency. But NT WorkSafe's investigation has found sufficient evidence to allege that Hellybrook and Matt Wright engaged in conduct intended to falsify the number of flight hours accrued by the aircraft in Hellybrook's fleet over an extended period of time. So this includes interfering with metres in the aircraft, which record the time an aircraft is in use, and not accurately recording flight times in the aircraft's maintenance release document. Now, NT WorkSafe alleges this conduct would have impacted the regular inspection and replacement of the aircraft's components that may have been critical to the airworthiness of the aircraft, therefore placing at risk the health and safety of the pilots and passengers each time the aircraft from the Helibook fleet was used. And what's the potential penalties for these charges? Well, if found guilty of all charges, Hellybrook faces a maximum penalty of $6 million, the company, while Matt Wright faces a maximum combined penalty of $1.2 million or five years imprisonment or both. And now this matter is listed for an initial mention at the Darwin Local Court on the 27th of February. Okay, thank you, Dan. G'day, my name is Floyd. Yeah, I work in the Spanish mackerel fishery in, in the Gulf of Carpentaria. I love what I do and love my job, and you're listening to the Country Hour.
A group of seasonal workers from Vanuatu have launched what's been described as Australia's largest sexual harassment claim against their former employer. The 12 women are taking one of Australia's largest horticultural companies, Perfection Fresh, to court, accusing it of not providing a safe workplace. Now, Perfection Fresh, it owns farms across Australia. Over the years, it's had some mango interests here in the Northern Territory. The allegations in this case relate to incidents at a work site in South Australia. Elsie Kennedy has the story. That's a song called Heat of the Sun. It's part of an album launched this week by a group of seasonal workers calling themselves the Perfection 12. The women, who are all members of the United Workers' Union, are taking large horticulture employer Perfection Fresh to court. They're suing the company for nearly $4 million, alleging they were sexually assaulted while working at a tomato glass house in South Australia. Pacific Beat reporter Mackenzie Smith spoke to United Workers' Union representative Katerina Chinani. This case uh, that's been brought against Perfection Fresh is, we believe, one of the biggest sexual harassment cases in Australia. These women, and there are 12 women who have come forward, 11 of them are seasonal workers from Vanuatu, but one actually is a woman who is based locally in South Australia. The circumstances surrounding the case uh, are that there are allegations of ongoing systematic uh, harassment and abuses that have occurred. Uh, the women uh, work in a glasshouse facility in two wells in South Australia, which is one of the largest tomato glasshouses in Australia, and they pick and pack all the baby tomatoes that probably end up in our lunchboxes uh, this week as we're packing up kids' lunchboxes for school. The work they've done, and and many of them have been coming to Australia and working over an ongoing period of time, like multiple years. These incidences occurred over a period of time um, and were repetitive and ongoing. And it's only really been because these women have organised themselves and spoken through their union that they uh, that these stories have been revealed. The, the company Perfection Fresh claims it's not responsible for what happened to these women because it suspended, it took action and suspended these employees. Why do you believe the company does have a responsibility here? There's a number of factors. Firstly, legally, employers have a responsibility to provide a safe workplace. These women were working in the Perfection Fresh glass house when these incidents occurred. The perpetrators were Perfection Fresh employees. But ultimately, the moment they enter that glass house, it is the employer's responsibility to ensure that the workplace that these women are working in is safe. It's free from sexual harassment. No woman should be asked to go to work and face what these women have. So it's legally their responsibility, but actually morally, it's their workplace. This is where these incidents occurred. We've got everything from sexual propositioning, inappropriate language and behaviour, instances of physical groping and sexual assault. One woman has documented 100 allegations of groping and it's occurred in the glasshouse itself where these women work. Therefore, it's the employer's responsibility to ensure 
that that did not occur and to provide mechanisms to ensure that it does not occur for any other woman in that workplace. Were these women particularly vulnerable because most of them were seasonal workers? I mean, all 12 women are insecure casual workers. 11 of them happen to be on a, a seasonal work visa. So the common factor is that employment model of insecure work, it is a driver, um, uh, an underlying driver of, of exploitation. And, you know, if your shifts in income are dependent on the rostering arrangements and ensuring that you have favour with whoever it is that's in charge of rostering, then that model of employment lends itself to abuse. And that's what's occurred here. So it's not particularly that they were on a visa because it has occurred to other women um, in that workplace who were not on visas. It is that they're in insecure work plus they're on an insecure visa. And so the threat of not getting shifts in income is huge when you rely on that, and especially when you've come from um, another country and that is your sole source of income uh, while you're here and you rely on it to send money back. That is Katarina Chinani from the United Workers' Union in a statement from Perfection Fresh says the company has policies and processes for raising complaints and takes any allegation of sexual harassment extremely seriously. Perfection Fresh says it treated these complaints made against two employees very seriously when they were raised and responded accordingly. In both cases, Perfection Fresh took immediate steps to remove the persons accused of sexual harassment from the workplace and to investigate the matters raised. In both cases, the employment of the accused person came to an end. Perfection Fresh acknowledges the very serious nature of the complaints and the impact of the alleged conduct on the women involved. It says we remain committed to providing a safe workplace for all workers and as the allegations are currently the subject of proceedings before the Federal Court, Perfection Fresh cannot make any further comment. Hello, my name is Chris Zolis. I'm the Managing Director of Verdant Minerals, the owner of the Amaru Phosphate Project on Amaru Station, south of Tennant Creek, and you're listening to The Country Hour. It is 20 to 1 and you are tuned into the Country Hour. The Northern Australian Infrastructure Facility, the NAIF, it was established in 2016. It's just been tweaked by the federal government. What's happened to the NAIF? You'll find out next. That is Graham Connors and the tune a little further north, right across the territory on the ABC, this is the Country Hour. The Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility better known as the NAIF. It was set up in 2016, and the aim at the time was to stimulate development in the north by handing out concessional loans to companies with some big plans. Over the years, the NAIF, well, it's been heavily criticised. It's also been seen by some as being useful, and over the years, it's been tweaked. Well, the federal government has just tabled in Parliament what it calls a new investment mandate for the NAIF. To learn more about this, I spoke a moment ago to the Minister for Northern Australia and Minister for Resources, Madeline King. Well, today we've launched the new investment mandate for the Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility. And what it's about is about 
making more funding available for a wider range of projects because this Labor government knows how important the economic development of the North is uh, and that's why we have NAIF uh, looking out for lots of different projects, uh, a more expansive view of what's possible uh, for the NAIF to support. Okay. Uh, and, and when you say yeah. more funding, do you mean more dollars? Well, last year we already have expanded the amount of money that NAIF can contribute uh, to these projects. It's up to a $7 billion facility. But now we are also widening the types of projects uh, it can look into. So, for instance, we've uh, instructed NAIF to extend its investment into social infrastructure. So that might include remote and regional housing or other types of uh, infrastructure and communities that, that, that benefit those communities on a smaller scale. One of your colleagues famously called the NAIF the No Actual Infrastructure Fund. Lots of dollars committed, but no money actually going out the door. Has that story changed much in the last 12 months? Uh, I'm really uh, happy to report that story uh, has changed enormously. We have got... Uh, so much funding out the door, we've had to extend uh, the funding of the NAIF. And that's why we have gone up to the $7 billion mark available for the facility because uh, projects are being funded uh, and they're working. And uh, some of them, the older projects, are now returning money uh, back into the budget as they repay these loans. So my objective is to ensure that NAIF works harder for the North and for the people of the North. And so I've got teams in the NAIF and they do a really terrific job and they're spread right around the country uh, in Darwin, in Cairns, uh, in Townsville and in Western Australia. So they're, they're on the ground looking for these projects and helping people who have that idea for a project and need a bit of assistance pulling the funding strings together and the NAIF can back them in. So uh, it's a really hands-on uh, now, the NAIF, uh, to make sure these projects can happen for communities right across the top end uh, from west to east. In the announcement today about the NAIF's new investment mandate, it talks about how the NAIF can help Australia achieve its net zero target. How? Well, the NAIF invests in critical minerals projects uh, and we know critical minerals are required for all the green energy technologies that we will need. So a part of the investment mandate is making sure that $500 million uh, of the NAIF is focused on enabling the critical mineral strategy and therefore the net zero emissions uh, strategy of the whole nation. And this is part of our, quite frankly, our global contribution to net zero because if we are able to invest in these projects uh, and have these minerals uh, and rare earths available to our partners to help us build those green energy technologies, that's how we meet those targets. And for you, what's the NAIF's greatest achievement? I think its greatest achievement is now having a wide portfolio of projects across uh, a lot of activities and, and we're making it uh, better. You're, for you're not willing to say one? Oh, but there are too many. I couldn't choose. How can you choose favourites when the NAIF has uh, uh, got so many things uh, going for it? I think the student accommodation uh, up in Queensland has been really important. Something that's not often talked about is how important it is to have student accommodation available uh, for campuses in the north so that people from all sorts of backgrounds can have access to university education uh, 
in place. And I think that's a really important project that I that I am really uh, super proud of. I'm super proud of the work NAIF has done into a number of critical minerals uh, projects around the country. Uh, also into developing new uh, salt projects, things you don't kind of think about, but, you know, we need salt, you know, not only for us as, as humans, <laughs> but we also need it for uh, chemical processes. So it's just the diversity of the projects that I'm I'm really proud of. And into the future, it's, this focus or new focus on social infrastructure is really important. And, and just yesterday, I met with a traditional owner who alerted me to a potential housing project in Cairns. And, you know, more positive uh, uh, stories from the NAIF will uh, emerge and they will be around uh, this ability to create better housing opportunities as well as other, as other economic development right across the north. And just finally, Minister, I know you do have to go. Critical minerals like nickel, lithium, doing it really tough at the moment. Is this simply just the boom and bust nature of mining? Oh, look, you know, it could you could say that, but I think there's been a huge change in, in the situation for nickel with the uh, incredible investment combined with an export ban in Indonesia. So that's a that's a very significant change in the international nickel market. So it's not the same old, same old uh, boom and bust for resources. It's a new type of international market structure and that's why uh, I've met uh, very recently uh, and quickly with the industry leaders uh, as well as the state government and WIO, most of these nickel projects are. Mind you, there is nickel uh, refinery also in Tasmania that's been affected. So uh, it is such a change that we need to make sure we understand it better uh, and we'll be working on some actions we can take forward about about nickel in particular. Lithium is a bit different. Uh, it, it is, um, and I have warned in, in, it's warned in the critical mineral strategies, a thin market that's very new. It's going to have these fluctuations for some time to come, but I might add, uh, international markets, uh, you know, and their their vagaries is, is no consolation for the, the women and men who are uh, facing uncertainty because of mine closures. Thanks for your time this afternoon. Yeah, no worries. Take it easy. That is the Minister for Northern Australia and Minister for Resources, Madeline King. I see Grant Wilson, who's from the resources company Tyvan Limited. He's jumped onto social media today and writes, Timely changes at the NAIF, prioritising Northern Australia, First Nations, the energy transition and critical minerals. Tyvan is perfectly aligned by design and uniquely well-placed to deliver projects that matter. So he's giving these changes to the NAIF, a thumbs up. I say changes. The government calls it a new investment mandate. New from ABC Books. We've already fallen in love with Mustard Dogs. No one would have predicted that a show about a bundle of puppies could take the nation by storm. Now the series narrator, Lisa Miller, takes you behind the scenes in the new book, Mustard Dogs from Pups to Pros. Like so many of the shoots, not everything went to plan. I mean, they were working with animals, right? Mustard Dogs from Pups to Pros by Lisa Miller. Book and audiobook available in bookstores and online. Yesterday, the High Court handed down a significant ruling in favour of native title holders near Borroloola. If you missed the story, the court found that an application by Glencore to expand its Bing Bong port operation would impinge on the rights of native title holders. And the High Court ordered the Territory Government not to grant 
and expansion of the Bing Bong lease. Northern Land Council Chief Executive Joe Munjard says this decision was a long time coming. The Northern Land Council recognises this is a huge win for the native title holders and um, we want to um, recognise that uh, it's been a 10 year struggle. Um, Northern Land Council's been with native title holders every step of the way, particularly native title holders like David Harvey, Thomas Simon and all of the other native title holders. Um, sadly, we lost Mr Friday over the last 10 years while the case has been running, but he leaves such a positive legacy, so I thank him for that. The Northern Land Council calls on MRM to now listen to native title holders hear their concerns and gain their consent if they want to change any of their operations down at their mine site. Well, the High Court decision today really clears the air in terms of understanding native title holders do have rights. Rights now established in law and MRM needs to understand that. And But we come with um, an open heart and open mind and we want to engage in a positive way with MRM on behalf of native title holders. That is the NLC's Chief Executive Joe Martin-Jard. The Territory's Minister for Mining, Mark Monaghan, says the government would be working through new options with Glencore's Bing Bong port. And in a statement, he says Glencore will not need to cease its operations at MacArthur River Mine. However, the Territory government will continue to work with Glencore and native title holders to ensure the best outcome for all parties in regards to the land which is subject to the decisions of the High Court. We are five minutes away from the one o'clock news here on the ABC. I've got a little bit of mango news for you this afternoon. Do the mango bango. We all go bongo for the mango bango. So Hort Innovation has this week published its Australian Horticulture Statistics Handbook for the last financial year. And it is quite a read. (laughs) It's a big handbook. It's a very comprehensive look at the trade and production data of more than 75 horticultural products. Now, the biggest hort product, and it shouldn't surprise you, the biggest hort product in the Territory is, of course, mangoes. And so if we look at the data from Hort Innovation, it shows that the Territory produced more than 36,000 tonnes of mangoes last financial year. So that's over 5 million trays, the standard 7-kilo tray. And the value of the industry sits at $101 million. Is the Northern Territory still Australia's largest producer of mangoes? Well, the answer is yes, but only just. So the Territory produced 49% of Australia's mangoes. Queensland produced 47%, WA 3%, and there were some small volumes out of New South Wales, Victoria, And even South Australia, someone in SA has a five-hectare plot of mangoes, it would seem. (laughs) So there you go. That's the latest info when it comes to mangoes in the Northern Territory. If NT Farmers Association and the Territory Government are listening to the Country Hour, you might want to go and update your mango stats because they are a bit different to what's been spruit in recent times. Mango, bango, tastes so sweet, so mango, bango, we all go bongo for the mango, bango, tastes so sweet, so Ooh, Cattle Australia has got a new chair. I'll tell you who it is next. 
in a heartwarming new season. I'm a bit shy and I'm fairly risk averse. I'm 22 and I'm ready to start dating. Meet the singles looking for love. It's just really scary. I am unique, fabulous, don't forget that. I think I'm crushing a little bit. I would like to kiss someone. The brand new season of Better Date Than Never. No times. Starts Tuesday, February 20 on ABC TV and ABC iView. Always free, always entertaining. Ah, Max's Turtle, Cattle Class, Toe Drive for Sherbet Livestock. We're all flat out. Give us plenty of room on the road and you're listening to the Country Hour. So in a bit of cattle news, the fairly new peak body for grass-fed cattle producers in this nation, Cattle Australia, it's got itself a brand new chair. A chairman who's got quite a few interests in the Northern Territory, actually. Joined in the studio again by Dan Fitzgerald. Gary Edwards got the job, hey? Yes, Gary Edwards. He's taking over from inaugural chair David Foote. Uh, Gary Edwards is the managing director of AAM Investment, which owns Lejeune, Maryfield and Limbunya stations here in the Territory, as well as a bunch of other ag assets right across the country. Yeah. Um, in a statement... Gary Edwards thanked David Foote for his role in setting up Cattle Australia and said uh, he was honoured to take up the position and will prioritise greater transparency to cattle producers on how their levy funds are allocated and work towards growing the advocacy and influence of Cattle Australia. There's also a new deputy chair to this organisation, another name that might be familiar to Territorians, uh, Adam Coffey. Mm. He's now a cattle producer in central Queensland, but he's been a uh, about a decade working across the Northern Territory and the Kimberley regions in the ag- in the beef sector. Yeah, he was at Stapleton Station there. That was one of the last times I saw Adam. Yes, yeah, he was there for a while. He's become a big, Catherine. a big advocate for the industry. All right, thanks for keeping us up to date, Dan. There is an extreme fire danger warning in place this afternoon for the Barclay North. And there's been some decent rainfall figures in the 24 hours to 9am, including decent falls out in the VRD. Armstrong River has recorded 81. Townsend Creek, 52. Monogini stations had 61. Saddle Creek, 53. Victoria River Downs Cattle Station, 55, and the Upper Townsend Creek has recorded 74. Oh, there might be a few nervous people in the VRD. Those floods have only just receded and they're getting some big rain again. We'll be speaking to the Weather Bureau in five minutes' time. As always, if you have a question you want to put straight to the Bureau, do so via our text line 0487 1057. Good day, this is a Wayne Cot. I'm the mango growers in Antique from Berry Springs, Lama Lagoon, Acacia, Lake Bennett to Pine Creeks. Uh, you're listening to Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Wattle seed has been consumed by Indigenous Australians for thousands of years. Researchers have been taking a very close look at some varieties. And turns out we might all benefit from getting a bit more wattle seed into our diet. But how could that be done? In a moment on the Country Hour, we'll talk about the research and we'll talk to...
Karen Sheldon from Karen Sheldon Catering about the benefits of wattle seed and how to get it into our diet. And I guess also the business opportunities that could come from this. Before that, let's go to the Weather Bureau. Billy Lynch is there this afternoon. Billy, some decent rainfall figures up to 9 o'clock this morning. What are some of the best? Yeah, hey, Matt. Um, yeah, good scattering of falls across the uh, the top end, sort of, you know, 30 to, to 80 millimetres or so. Some of the better ones, Mount Bundy, uh, 87 mils, Bam Bam Springs, 83 uh, the Armstrong River, which uh, feeds into the, the Vic River, 82. Uh, Bachelors had 76. Um, so, yeah, a lot of sort of falls like that. And then in the Darwin area, um, nothing too much to talk about, but there was a bit of rain yesterday evening, if you were lucky enough to get it. So uh, 15 mils up at gunpoint and t- less than 10 millimetres elsewhere. Yeah. On our text line, Dave says, where's all the rain gone? The radar is clear and it looks like it just flew past Darwin last night. Yep, <laughs> it was a bit like that, wasn't it? Uh, the, the northern suburbs seemed to get lucky, um, but it was pretty patchy yeah, um, about the rural area and the, the Cox Peninsula. Just fizzled out. Just one of those ones. Yeah, I think I heard Beck mention yesterday she was asking everyone to cross their fingers and cross their toes. So And it didn't work. <laughs> didn't work for everybody. <laughs> um, I'm just looking at the Bureau's River Heights page for Northern Rivers. And, yeah, while there is no flood warnings in place this afternoon, the Victoria River is on the rise again. It's responding. It is responding. It's, it's a very wet catchment at the moment. Mm. So it's not soaking in it's just gonna yeah run through the rivers um so yeah some of those uh smaller rivers feeding into the vic so the armstrong river that's definitely seeing some rises but uh also falling so sort of up and down fairly quickly the townsend creek's gone up um even dashwood crossing is on the up um but at the crossing at vic river it's still a long long way below the bridge at the moment yes so let's talk about potential rainfall for the Territory. What's on the horizon? Yeah, so look, for the rest of today, tomorrow, even into the weekend, I think just a bit more of what we've been seeing. So these scattered thunderstorms, um, they're a bit slow moving. So you know you will get a reasonable total, you know, 50 to 100 millimetres. Uh, even Groot Island, actually, since 9am um, today, has had 66 millimetres with some thunderstorms. So, so yeah, that's what we can expect. Um, and this is because a few things. Well, we've got a, a trough across the top end at the moment. Uh, we are expecting a, a weak low pressure system to develop somewhere within that trough over the next couple of days. Um probably drifting towards the west so towards the western top end over the weekend or early next week and then and then possibly heading east again towards the gulf of carpentaria so that will add a bit of potential to the rainfall across the top end um and then yeah i mean believe it or not the the monsoon's actually quite active to our north um Mm. up around ambon um through the arafira sea there so uh, yeah, it's not without a chance that, that that low might actually draw that monsoon down towards the, the top end, either late in the weekend or early next week. Ooh, okay. 
So, yeah, it's kind of... That's the headline. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's still watch this space. Um, it's, yeah, hard to go too strong on a message, but this is the kind of thing that we're quite interested in at the Weather Bureau and keeping a close eye on. And fair enough. We're about to hear from a cattle station down in the southeast corner of the Northern Territory. It would love some more rain. Are they, are they likely <laughs> to, to get any? Uh, yeah, so it's pretty dry at the moment. Um, and I should mention we do have a fire weather warning today across the northern Barkley with yep. some, some dry southeasterly winds. But yeah, we do expect humidity from Queensland to push across the, the southeast uh, over the weekend. So um, today, just a chance of storms across the northern Barkley, tomorrow spreading across the southern Barkley, and then for the weekend, yeah, getting right down into the, the southeast and also Alice Springs. So there will be a few thunderstorms across central Australia into the weekend. Okay, okay. Good news. Thanks so much for your time this afternoon. No worries. Thanks, Matt. That is Billy Lynch there at the Weather Bureau. It's 10 past one. This is the country hour. When we look at the map of the Territory, there's been big rain in the top end over the last month or so. But in central Australia, there's quite a few cattle stations that are looking a bit dry and would love some rain. Hugh Godfrey is the manager of Tobermory Station on the Queensland border along the Plenty Highway. It recently had about 50 millimetres over parts, which is good, but he told Victoria Ellis the summer's been so hot that they'd love a bit more rain. You know, we were running at mid-40s for, for a fair while up until, you know, even into January it was still very hot. A few storms sort of back in December, but nothing to really talk about. Um, yeah, we were sort of, until this front, till Kiralee went down the border the other day, we were reasonably light on, like this sort of southeastern corner of the Territory had been missing out a bit between us and Tarleton and sort of as you go around the top of the desert, it, it was a bit light on, very light on actually. We were sort of running on last year's feed, but, but we didn't have too many fires right over this side, so we sort of, we weren't whinging too much, but, um, but yeah, our turn came the other day. Look, we had sort of you know, around two inches to, to sort of two and a half inches over the whole place, so that sort of filled up a few dams and got us all a big, bit excited, I suppose. Are you guys hoping for a fair bit more or what sort of rainfall figures are you hoping to get? Yeah, we'd certainly be hoping for another two inches at least here. Look, we've, we've certainly had a, had a start, um, but, but yeah, we're certainly looking for more. We, we'll, um, it's only sort of up until Kiralee, it was only sort of, you know, bits of storms and showers here and there. It wasn't actually, because all these systems of late have been a bit further north and because we're quite a long station, we haven't really had anything down the bottom. Um, which is, you know, you know, it's obviously getting down into the sand, into the desert and into the sand, but, yeah, we're certainly looking for more. We'd sort of, you know, we'd certainly be hoping for rain right through, you know, bits and pieces on and off, even through into next month. You know, we're only just into the start of February, which, yeah, which still leaves us plenty of time left to, left to get a bit more for the year. In terms of cattle prices going back up, or what does that mean for you? Oh, I think it's great for everyone. Um, yeah, it's certainly going to be a big, it's a big turnaround. It was... Yeah, the, everybody flogged the market down for whatever for their for whatever reason last year, and you know we all sort of knew that that wasn't quite right. Um, and rain was probably the only thing that was going to turn it around, which it has. Um, yeah, so we'll it certainly certainly brightened up this year. Um, yeah, the end of last year was, if you believe most of the media, and it, it wasn't going to be a great year this year, but that certainly isn't going to be the case. 
You said that some of your staff are back, not quite everybody yet, but how is that looking this year in terms of numbers and getting ready for your first muster? No, we'll be fine. No, there's plenty of staff. We've we've got, oh, I've only got sort of four or five back here at the moment. The, you know, the rest are all, you know, I don't bring the grader drivers back till probably next month. Not much point in grading a road when you hope it's going to get washed away. You, you um, yeah, The grader drivers will start next month and... Yeah, everybody else will come in probably the end of this month and we'll sort of do a bit of fencing and then we'll start after Easter uh, first round. But, yeah, we've got plenty of staff coming. Didn't really have too many dramas getting staff this year. Um, we had plenty of applicants. Yeah, I, I would have said it's been a reasonable... In terms of the staff front, yeah, we're, we're certainly happy with... Um, as long as everyone turns up, that's always a bit of a battle. But um, at, at this stage, we're going all right anyway. That is Tobermory Station Manager Hugh Godfrey speaking to Victoria Ellis. And Hugh, if you are listening this afternoon, sounds like the Weather Bureau is giving you a chance of a bit of rainfall this weekend, so fingers crossed. Hello, my name is Leela, and I born in Manangrida in 1963. Not from the hospital, but I born in Bush. And you're listening to this ABC Country Hour. It's a quarter past one. Wattle seeds being consumed by Indigenous Australians for thousands of years. And according to research, which has now been published in the Journal of Food Science, we should all be trying to get this native legume into our diets. Sarah Susan Jacob is from the ARC Centre for Uniquely Australian Foods and has been researching the properties of wattle seed and has also been working closely with Karen Sheldon Catering here in the Territory, who you will hear from in just a moment. But uh, Sarah, maybe first up this afternoon, can you tell our audience how you got interested in wattle seed in the first place? So uh, I was exploring opportunities to do a PhD, and then I came across this project that combined understanding the chemistry, understanding the sensory properties, while also talking to Indigenous Australians that have used this for thousands of years and trying to combine all of that together into usable information that uh, we can use to create uh, product opportunities. And I think that was really exciting for me because uh, it was very different to a traditional PhD model. And what's special about wattle seed? So wattle seeds as you all might know, uh, have been used for thousands and thousands of years by Indigenous Australians uh, in a variety of different forms. But we also now know that they're very high in protein, uh, very high in dietary fiber, which we know has multiple health benefits. They also have a lot of phytochemical compounds that we know have uh, anti-carcinogenic, anti-inflammatory benefits. So uh, I do strongly believe that everyone would benefit from including water seeds in their diet. How many varieties does Australia have? Do you know? Uh, I would say close to a thousand varieties wow. of wattle seed, but uh, we don't know enough about all of them yet. Uh, so it's a long, it's a long way to go. But I think for now we have covered close to forty. And in your research, are there some varieties that are, are clearly better than others? I wouldn't say better than others. I think it depends on the application that you're looking for. So if you're looking for something that's higher in protein, you would go to specific varieties. If you're looking for something that has a better phytochemical profile, you would go to a different set of varieties. And uh, yeah, it depends on what you're looking for. Sarah, what do you hope 
this research of yours leads to? Well, a, a really optimistic outcome would be so. Um, one of the major outcomes of this project has been the development of food product concepts that contain uh, wattle seed in a major proportion. So we have pro- three products that contain 20 to 30 percent wattle seed, as opposed to commercial products that contain at most three percent of wattle seed. Uh, so one of the most optimistic outcomes would be to get these products to people that would actually benefit from them. Uh, so getting them into schools, getting them into community stores, uh, getting them into communities where people get interested in using the seeds that they harvest to manufacture these products on country, leading to better economic outcomes and better health outcomes. I think that would be amazing. But it's a long road to get there. Do you see the harvesting of wattle seed would always be a, a, a wild harvest or do you think there would be room for commercial plantings? Uh, I think that's a difficult question to answer because there is a lot of uh, there is a lot of tradition and culture included in the wild harvesting process, and domesticating varieties could potentially lead to the loss of those practices. Um, but there are other ways to there are other ways to uh, improve the supply chain of these seeds while maintaining uh, while maintaining wild harvesting practices for example we could uh, form cooperatives that uh, include multiple different communities that are involved in harvesting to improve the supply and improve the bulk of quantity that um, is available for each variety and just finally australia's national floral emblem is the golden wattle have you looked at its properties um, no, but I do know that it is na- Australia's national floral emblem, and it's actually the colours of the leaves and the foliage that inspired Australia's national colours. It's actually, yeah, I talk about that a lot. But, you know, <laughs> but we, <laughs> yeah. well, we haven't tasted it yet. You've, you've no, focused but, on different varieties. No, I haven't tasted it yet, but we have other researchers at the ARC Centre and at UQ looking at Acacia pignanta, which is the uh, which is the golden wattle. So, yeah, we do know that it has uh, outstanding nutritional profiles. Thanks for your time today. No problem. Happy to chat. Sarah Susan Jacob, who is from the ARC Centre for Uniquely Australian Foods, and she's with the University of Queensland. Let's get Karen Sheldon onto the Country Hour from Karen Sheldon Catering. Uh, Karen, you've been using wattle seed in some of your products for years now. Can you maybe just tell us a bit about how you use wattle seed and, and sort of what you like about it. So we started using wattle seed just as a flavouring because we um, had seen so much of the, with our work in Central Australia in Tennant Creek and the Barclay region and Alice Springs, we'd seen so much of the local Aboriginal people harvesting it and worked with Raylene Brown from Coongas Can Cook. And so then um, we'd been using it in lots of different flavourings because of the beautiful unique flavour that it's got. It's got a really sort of a home-baked flavour when you use it properly in in different um, foods for flavouring. But then we had the opportunity to do a research project with the University of Queensland. We were um, part of a funding program that, um, that we, we put some money into with other people um, to do the research um, with... UQ and we often went over this and we looked at all the different um, ways the research was being done and then we 
came to discover that because of the um, nutritional qualities and the health benefits of wattle seed, um, we were able to also um, develop some products with UQ that um, used a lot more of the wattle seed and therefore um, we, we got quite excited about the opportunities for um, utilising it to replace some of the, the missing um, vitamins and things that are often in, in Aboriginal communities that people often don't get yeah, um, and, enough and nutrients. Can we talk more about that? What are some of the health benefits of wattle seed that have impressed, well, inspired you? I think particularly um, some the iron and some of the vitamins that um, are often missing in poor diets. Um, a lot of Aboriginal communities we, we learned, you know, a lot of people are, are missing the iron they need, which um, means that they can't absorb other nutrients as well. So wattle seed, particularly some of the ones, the varieties we were experimenting with at UQ, have um, very high iron content and can supply um, and other enzymes as well, but they can supply all the daily nutrients that people need. So we found that was quite an exciting um, opportunity, future opportunity for it. And as part of this research, you've helped to create some recipes that contain more than 20% wattle seed. Can you tell us about some yeah. of them? Yeah, so um, we looked at um, different kinds of products that we could develop that might um, entice people to eat them and um, some of those was uh, we, we developed um, some food bars um, that could be you know food replacements for people that don't have a, a very good diet and um, like a muesli bar and, sort of thing yeah sort yeah. of like a muesli bar and um, but it, it was quite it's very palatable and we were you know, very conscious of not putting too much sugar in it and that sort of thing. So it was a long process to get it to a, where it was still had all the nutrients, but it was very palatable as well. And we did, we've done various other experiments as well. One of them was with, um, which I really liked, was sort of like a porridge, but we looked at doing it as a savoury porridge. And while we recognise that it's not going to be something that um, is immediately popular. We, we see some potential experimental activities in the future that could open it up as a nutritious food for people. So what's the key then, Karen, from turning this research and understanding into commercial opportunities that well, make a, a difference? Key, yeah. Look, Matt... The key is always going to be having an Aboriginal community or driver that wants to do it. So all we can do is provide the, the information for people. We're working very closely with Raylene Brown and she's now the chair of Finbar, which is um, an organisation of Aboriginal bush and botanical harvesters that are really, really trying to make sure that Aboriginal people are properly recognised and rewarded for their traditional knowledge. And so being very mindful of, of Raylene's ethics, and now Raylene is actually the co-chair of um, Saltbush Social Enterprises. So we're looking at Saltbush um, taking over all these the IP and the resources that 
the Karen Sheldon Group has developed and possibly looking at how they can work with um, different Aboriginal organisations to commercialise it. One of the things that I've really noticed over the years is that um, there's a special kind of wattle seed that grows really well in the Barclay region. And so, you know, helping local Aboriginal people commercialise it in that region would provide a very much needed um, local industry. Is that the yellow seed that I've seen at your kitchen one time? Yeah, the one that looks like little buzzing bumblebees. Yes. Yeah, yep. It's a beautiful looking seed and um, and it grows really well in that region. So, so if something took off, if something took off, a product really took off with wattle seed in it, there would be enough supply? Well, it, of course it's seasonal and it'd have to be a situation where it was all gathered when the season was right to have, you know, it is a chicken and egg thing with um, with bush foods because they're very seasonal. And, of, of course, sometimes when the opportunity to use them comes up, like through a commercial use, you might have missed the season and you've got to wait till next season to, to harvest enough. And then you've got to have the funds to harvest it, you know, all those things. We learned all that when we were working with Kakadu Plum. Sometimes the seasonality... It's um, getting commercialising any new product, you know, takes a lot of time and effort. But there's a lot of interest in it now. We've found that there's a lot of interest um, with governments trying to um, develop new Indigenous industries. And um, now that I'm basically retired, I've sort of got a bit more time to to work with different groups and have a look at how we can, even in small ways, start to encourage Aboriginal people to develop the industries that are so endemic to them. Always lovely having you on the Country Hour. Karen, thanks so much for your time. No worries, Matt. Cheers. Big thanks to Karen Sheldon. Time to start eating some wattle seed, hey? Now, just quickly, the NTC Food Council has just issued a press release about a new strategy for the commercial barramundi fishery. The season, of course, kicked off last week. And commercial boats are still not allowed to fish in the mini, mini Merganella, Buckingham Bay and Arnhem Bay regions because of concerns raised by TOs. Dan Fitzgerald's in the studio. What's happened? Yeah, so the NT Seafood Council says an interim commercial harvest strategy has been implemented for the Barra season. Uh, she, uh, Catherine Winchester, the chief executive, says innovation set to be rolled out during the season, uh, extensive research on reducing interactions with uh, the gillnets, as well as a program of electronic and real-time monitoring to provide transparency and accountability. Uh, the AFAN, the Amateur Fishermen's Association, has been quite vocal about all its concerns. Uh, CEO David Trivolo, he says that he was advised about his interim strategy last night, but believes it doesn't go far enough. So we're not talking about quotas here, is my understanding. It's more about controlling the amount of fishing that the commercial sector can do. Okay. Sounds like we might have to get the Seafood Council on the radio tomorrow. Yes, <laughs> for sure. Thank you for that, Dan. That wraps up today's Country Hour. Keep it rural.